Hello and welcome to the first real episode of Conflicts of Interest, The Crown of Charlemagne. In this episode, we are going to be introducing our first topic, the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War began with the defenestration of Prague on May 23, 1618, 400 years to the day from the launching of this podcast. The war raged across most of Central Europe until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 and became one of the most devastating conflicts in all of human history. It is considered to be the last and the greatest of the European wars of religion, although this title can be a bit misleading. While the initial conflict was certainly religiously motivated, it's hard to fit Catholic France fighting against the Catholic Emperor into any broad picture of a war along religious lines. Even worse was the amount of switching sides, something that would hardly be possible if participants were motivated by staunch religious convictions. And while the concluding peace of Westphalia is much lauded as an epoch-shifting event that formed the modern nation-state, the war itself is often passed over, not because it was irrelevant, but because its complexity can be overwhelming. I've included a timeline of the involvement of all the different participants in the show notes, and it's a mess. Also, 30 years is a long time, and it's never a good sign when one can divide the war into five different phases, each nearly as long as World War II. Even worse is that the primary battleground of the war was the Holy Roman Empire. A quick glance at a map of it in 1618, and its hundreds of different bishoprics, duchies, counties, margraves, landgraves, baronies, imperial bailiwicks, free abbeys, knightly estates, and free imperial cities, it will make you want to tear your hair out. Despite this complication, the Thirty Years' War is worth studying, not just because of its central role in the story of Germany, but because of its central role in the story of all of Europe. The war sits at the center of questions about religion, governance, and what sovereignty even means, and it would draw in so many different participants that it has been justly called a European Civil War. All of these different participants had their own outlook on events, and their own ideas about how the Thirty Years' War fits into their national story. A Frenchman might see it through the eyes of the great Cardinal Richelieu, and the beginning of the era of French dominance, while a Spaniard saw their time of dominion come to an end. The Dutch, the Swiss, and the Portuguese saw themselves freed from Habsburg rule, and for the Danes and Swedes, it was just another chapter in a long book of Baltic rivalry, and perhaps Sweden's finest hour. The English looked upon the upheavals on the continent with Protestant sympathies, but from a measured distance, and in turn would be plunged into their own civil war. Lastly, the members of the Holy Roman Empire, Germans especially, but Austrians and Czechs as well, saw their country turned into a biblical apocalypse. A church elder, writing in 1641, wrote, quote, Germany has become a Golgotha, a place of skulls. The scourges of war, famine, and disease that plagued the empire for three decades cut down up to 20% of its population, a figure that almost doubles that of the Second World War. In fact, specifically cited as a reason for the Nazi surrender in 1945 was to avoid reaching, quote, the proportion of devastation and deprivation of that epoch. And indeed, public opinion polling in Germany as late as the 1960s placed the Thirty Years' War as the worst disaster in German history, above that of both of the world wars. The setting for all of this bloodshed was a time that historians have dubbed the Early Modern Era. Roughly from the late 1400s to the mid-1700s, this anachronistically named period served as a great historical estuary between the medieval world and the modern one. During this time, we see the invention of the printing press, the birth of humanism, the discovery and colonization of the New World, the Protestant Reformation, and the advent of widespread gunpowder weapons, all while feudal governments began to coalesce and centralize into nation-states. These issues were obviously all interconnected, but it's fair to say that Europe was going through some big changes, and there were sure going to be some growing pains. 
There were a series of conflicts that would all have their own motivations, but in the Thirty Years' War, everything came out at once. The initial religious and constitutional questions quickly spiraled into larger fears of Habsburg hegemony, dynastic and territorial rivalries, fight for independence and sovereignty, the relationship between the ruler and their estates, and what being a nation even meant. The growing maelstrom that engulfed the continent would continue to suck in participants, as soon all of Europe could find their own reason to get in on the action. Out of the slaughter would emerge the Peace of Westphalia. The combination of two different treaties, this monumental summit would establish the concepts of national sovereignty and the diplomatic congress. It was not the creation of some idealistic dream of a war-free Europe. Many issues remained unresolved. France and Spain would remain at war until 1659. It did, however, mark a fundamental shift from the religious and ideologically driven policies of the previous century to the pragmatism of realpolitik. Aggression was to be held in check by a balance of power between coexisting sovereign states, which would all eventually develop into ideas of international law. The idea that one state shouldn't interfere in another's domestic affairs, it seems so self-evident to us now as to border on ridiculousness. But that only goes to show how deeply Westphalian sovereignty has ingrained itself as the norm of the modern world. But before we can get started with some guys getting pushed out of a window, there's a lot of background to go through. Whatever else the Thirty Years' War would become, there is no divorcing it from its religious roots, and so some examination of the Reformation is called for. So here's a bit of a roadmap for the next few episodes. The next two are going to examine the late medieval church, and then trace the Reformation up until the Peace of Augsburg in 1555. From there, things will split up, and we will bring each of the major players in Central and Western Europe up until the crises of the early 17th century, from which all things can come together and get more linear again. Finally, I'm going to apologize in advance for what I'm sure will be many mispronunciations in many different languages. I'll do my best, but there are some limits to the sounds that I can make with my uncouth American accent. Along with this, I will probably fall back on the anglicized names wherever possible, in order to save us all the embarrassment of listening to me butcher the true names. And with those grandiose summations out of the way, I want to spend the rest of this episode building the center stage upon which this drama will play out and about which Voltaire famously quipped, quote, This agglomeration, which was called, and which still calls itself the Holy Roman Empire, was in no way holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. This agglomeration, as he put it, was founded way back in the mists of the European Dark Ages, and would last for over a thousand years, past the founding of the United States, until finally disassembled in the face of Napoleon's conquests. Through this long and complicated history, it would make up most of Central Europe, and occupy a central position not just geographically, but culturally, economically, and politically as well. It is tempting to look at a map of the empire, several of which you can see in the show notes, and think, well that's basically just Germany with some bonus parts. And while in essence it was basically just Germany with some bonus parts, as we'll see in a moment, it wasn't thought of that way, and it was fundamentally something else entirely. Now what it was exactly, uh, well as Johann Jacob Moser put it, Quote, the only way to approach the problem is to love anomaly, since the empire did not fit any recognizable pattern. So for us to approach this problem, we're going to need to go back to its founding. Once upon a time, the Germanic warlord Odoacer deposed the last Western emperor, Romulus Augustulus, and the Roman Empire officially fell. Well, in the West anyway. By this point, the deposition of the last Augustus was little more than a formality. While the imperial flame still burned bright in Constantinople, the Western Empire had, by delegation or invasion, 
ceded most of its territory to various Germanic tribal kingdoms, creating, for example, Visigothic Spain, Ostrogothic Italy, Vandalic North Africa, and Frankish, well, France. Of these kingdoms, the Franks emerged as the dominant power under the Merovingian dynasty. But by the 700s, the kings themselves came to play more and more of a ceremonial role. The real power lay in the hands of the mayor of the palace. Charles Martel, for example, who beat back the Moors at Tours, and who you can see doing just that on the right side of the podcast cover art, he wasn't a king at all, but rather one of these mayors of the palace. His son, Pepin the Short, grew tired of the pretense. He wrote to the Pope asking if it was proper that a king who had no power should rule a kingdom. At the time, the Pope was menaced by a different Germanic tribe, the Lombards, and he would welcome Frankish aid. He wrote back to Pepin saying that, no, no, that was not proper. And so with this tacit approval given, Pepin deposed the last Merovingian king and had himself crowned in 751. He would go on to intervene in Italy and establish the donation of Pepin, the foundation for the Papal States, a fief in central Italy ruled directly by the Pope. While Pepin the Short was an extremely competent ruler and deserving a lot more fame than he gets, it's hard not to get short shrift when your son is freaking Charlemagne. But Pepin also had another son, Carloman, and the Franks had this tradition of dividing their inheritance between multiple heirs. And while Carloman himself would conveniently die suddenly within three years of Pepin's death and give Charlemagne full control of the Frankish kingdoms, this method of succession, known as Gavelkind, will continue to pop up in our story. Charlemagne continued his father's close relationship with the Pope and also his policy of conquest, conquering all of northern Italy, Austria, Bavaria, a slice of Spain, and he famously spent 30 years campaigning to pacify Saxony. The reduction of Byzantine power over the last few centuries and their slow withdrawal from the Italian peninsula had convinced the popes that they needed a new protector. The actions of first Pepin and then Charlemagne showed that the Franks were up to the job. By the year 800, Charlemagne had near hegemonic control of all of Latin Christendom. Aside from Britain, he had acquired nearly all of Western and Central Europe that wasn't pagan or Muslim. It was only natural then that this universal control deserved a universal title. So on Christmas Day 800, while kneeling in prayer, Charlemagne was crowned Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III. Charlemagne's official biographers claim that he was caught fully unawares, but modern historians don't buy it. Someone as politically savvy as Charlemagne was sure to know of the Pope's intentions, but it is likely that he would later regret letting the Pope play kingmaker. Certainly when it was time to crown his own son as co-ruler in anticipation of his own death, Charlemagne, and not the Pope, placed the crown. But wait, I hear you say, isn't there already a Roman emperor in Constantinople? Well, kind of. The Emperor Constantine VI had recently been deposed, blinded, and probably killed by his mother Irene. There may have been a Roman empress, but there was no emperor. And to the chauvinism of those times, especially in the West, this was a perfect opportunity. It may seem bizarre to us now that an empire that was so obviously not Roman would cling to the title of Roman Empire. The Germanic kings of Francia could hardly claim the legacy of Rome, they had themselves been among those responsible for its destruction. All of this mattered little in the face of the majesty, the prestige, and even the biblical aura of the Roman Empire. A popular reading of the Old Testament by St. Jerome interpreted Daniel's prophecy to Nebuchadnezzar as referring to the four worldly empires of Babylon, Persia, 
Macedonia, and Rome. We are more familiar with the era of imperialism, where any country could grab a few colonies and call themselves an empire, looking at you Belgium. But before this, the very idea of empire was singular and exclusive. There could be no two empires at once. Thus, this empire that Leo and Charlemagne were creating, it had to be the Roman Empire. To think of it as anything different would be to contradict God's plan. I'm going to read you a passage from Viscount James Bryce's History of the Holy Roman Empire, written way back in 1864. So while very dated, it provides a great succinct description of the feelings surrounding Charlemagne's coronation. And remember that Odoacer is the warlord that ended the Western Empire, and that when he says Charles, he's talking about Charlemagne. Quote, When Odoacer compelled the abdication of Romulus Augustulus, he did not abolish the Western Empire as a separate power, but caused it to be reunited with or sink within the Eastern, so that for a time there was, as there had been before Diocletian, a single undivided Roman Empire. In AD 800, the very memory of a separate Western Empire, as it had stood from the death of Theodosius to Odoacer, had, as far as it appears, been long since lost, and neither Leo nor Charles nor any one among their advisors dreamt of reviving it. They too, like their predecessors, held the Roman Empire to be one and indivisible, and proposed by the coronation of the Frankish king not to proclaim the severance of East and West, but to reverse the act of Constantine, and make old Rome again the civil as well as the ecclesiastical capital of the empire that bore her name. Their deed was in essence illegal, but they sought to give it every semblance of legality. They professed and partially believed that they were not revolting against a reigning sovereign, but legitimately filling up the place of the deposed Constantine VI, the people of the imperial city exercising their ancient right of choice, their bishop his right of consecration. They set up an emperor of their own, whose representatives thenceforward reigned in the west, but Constantinople, which they did not attempt to reduce to obedience, retained her sovereigns as of yore. And Christendom saw henceforth two imperial lines, not in the time before AD 476, the conjoint heads of a single realm, but always as rivals and usually enemies, each denouncing the other as a pretender, each professing to be the one true and lawful head of the Christian church and people. Now there are two things in particular that I want to highlight from that passage. The first is how Charlemagne and Pope Leo are spoken of collectively. Their partnership in the imperial project can be traced back to even biblical references of church and state, render on to Caesar and all of that. But this would be further developed into the concept of regnum, the political realm, and sacerdotium, the spiritual world of the church. The early Pope Galatius stated that God had given the Christian world two swords, one wielded by the church to guide humanity to salvation, the other by the state to protect the church and allow it to flourish. Both Pope and Emperor needed the other, and were considered vital for the world order. But who should be foremost would repeatedly strain this relationship. And you can learn more about this in our first appendix episode. The other thing that I want to highlight from the passage is the idea of choice, something that was rooted in both the Germanic and the Roman tradition. In most tribal Germanic societies, hereditary rule was often preferred, but it was not some sort of divine right. And the title of Imperator was originally a military title, given by the acclaim of one's soldiers. Many times in Roman history, an army would declare their general emperor, and they would go marching off to Rome or somewhere. Often this ended in disaster, but many of Rome's best emperors began their reigns in this fashion. 
Medieval Europe would develop the idea that kings derived their power directly from God, and that this would transfer to their heirs immediately upon their death. The king is dead, long live the king. But the empire would hold on to this right of choice, eventually creating a formal election system. It would not stop dynasties from forming. Ottonians, Salians, Stauffens, Luxembourgs, and finally the Habsburgs. And even if the result was known long before the election, the fact that the election took place at all meant that the electors posed a serious, if indirect, check on the emperor, and that the empire was, as Samuel Pudendorf put it, quote, neither a regular kingdom nor a republic. To go along with this, the role of emperor evolved differently to that of just a king. Although after the mid-10th century, every emperor was from north of the Alps, they could not think of themselves simply as the emperor of the Germans, although they mostly were, and thus they could not focus on Germany, say, the way the French king could focus on France. The historian C.V. Wedgwood described the problem facing emperors, saying, quote, The term Roman Empire, classical tradition, and lust for power attracted German rulers to campaigns of conquest in Italy and the German nation was fatally submerged within the Holy Roman Empire. Pursuing the shadow of a universal power, the German rulers forfeited a national one. Becoming just the king of a more centralized, solely German state may have ultimately resulted in a more powerful position, but it also would have meant giving up the universal pretensions of an imperial title, something that the emperors could just not bring themselves to do. I mean, can you really blame them? Why even be an emperor if not to claim universal rule? The various imperial dynasties ruled from different dynastic homelands in different places, but would often conduct their reigns from a series of imperial lodges, all in a sort of grand tour. Because all of this would change upon the accession of a new emperor or dynasty, there was no one heartland or capital. There were many. And even when this grand tour model gave way to the independent power bases of first the Luxembourgs and more famously the Habsburgs, the legacy of the earlier system meant that there was greater political ownership throughout the empire, something exemplified by the term the German freedoms. This was not freedom in our sense of universal rights, but the idea that subjects should be free to pursue their lives without royal interference and yet be entitled to a share in government with the king. Peter Wilson, in his recent book about the empire, Heart of Europe, said, quote, Rather than championing an underlying set of universal freedoms, they celebrated the empire as an overarching system protecting numerous local and specific liberties. To most Germans, a system of universal freedoms was equated with tyranny, since it threatened their cherished distinctiveness. With every principality, bishopric, or even town having its own unique rights and privileges, it is unlikely that there was ever a single person who understood it all. Quoting from Wilson again, quote, Not only was the Constitution never officially codified, but the mountains of official documents and public commentary added to the difficulty of defining it by providing evidence for endless exceptions to supposedly general rules. The indefatigable Johann Jacob Moser wrote around a hundred volumes only to conclude that Germany is governed the German way. Despite all of this, numerous authors stress how even the relatively average and unimportant were well informed about their local rights. They may not have understood the Constitution as a whole, but they understood their own place within it, and they were proud of it. These freedoms, along with the later constitutional reforms that we're going to get to at the end of the episode, contributed to a process known as territorialization. This process, in essence the formation of virtually independent principalities within the empire, has been much lamented by nationalistic German writers as the cause for the late unification of Germany. Quoting from Wedgwood again, 
Quote, German feudalism, instead of becoming absorbed within the centralized state, disintegrated utterly. Custom and the weakness of the central government increased the self-reliance of each small unit at the expense of the whole, until one emperor declared with blasphemous humor that he was indeed a king of kings. From a 19th century nationalistic viewpoint, or even a 1930s one in the case of Wedgwood, territorialization may seem like a negative, but it also carried with it a number of beneficial side effects. The formation of all these pseudo-independent principalities meant that each one of them would have their own center of gravity and power. This led, among other things, to a far more diverse educational landscape, where instead of a few national universities, each major city wanted their own. It may have retarded national unification, but it also led to a culturally richer and more diverse country to unify. So to try and sum all of this up, the imperial crown held a loftier position as the preeminent monarch in all of Western Europe, with a more direct partnership with the Pope. But this added majesty came at the expense of less focused rule in a less unified way, and a closer papal relationship could be as much a curse as a blessing, which again, if you check out Appendix 1.1, you'll learn more. Now, of course, these vague ideas about the imperial mission were not fully thought out in the crowning of 800. The term holy wouldn't even be added for a few hundred years. But what I want to stress, and why I'm even telling this story, is that the empire was different and unique. And all of this added baggage about the role of the emperor in the wider Christian world, it would play a key role in shaping decisions made by emperors in the coming episodes. So back to Charlemagne. He only had one surviving son, Louis. Unfortunately, Louis had four, and thanks to good old Gavilkind's succession, they would all get a piece. Long before Louis's death, they'd be fighting each other and him about it. In 855, the Treaty of Verdun was signed, which broke the empire into three parts. West Francia, western and central France, East Francia, Germany, and Middle Francia, which would be renamed Lotharingia, after its ruler Lothar. It consisted of a strip of territory running from the Low Countries through eastern France and into northern Italy. While Lothar held the imperial title, neither of his brothers seemed too keen to recognize his overlordship, and the next century would see the prestige of the imperial crown sink into near irrelevance, with long periods without a crowned emperor. The interregnum was ended by Otto I, who reunited Germany and Italy, and was crowned emperor by the Pope in 962. West Francia did not recognize Otto, however, and remained independent of the empire as a separate Frankish kingdom, or, you know, France. The period between Louis and Otto was such a mess that many modern historians don't date the founding of the Holy Roman Empire to Charlemagne, but instead to the accession of Otto. With Otto, the empire became much more stable, both politically and territorially, and assumed a stronger German character, becoming a lot more recognizable as the later Holy Roman Empire. Personally, I think that dating from Otto judges the earlier period based on what the empire became rather than what it was at the time. Certainly, all later emperors all the way up until 1806 consider themselves to be heirs of Charlemagne and not just Otto. Either way, the distinction is largely irrelevant. Whether Charlemagne was the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire or just the Frankish Empire, the greater part of which would become the Holy Roman Empire, it doesn't really matter. The unique majesty and mission that was linked to Charlemagne's crown would be inherited by Otto and his successors. So we don't have even remotely enough time to even briefly cover the medieval era. So instead I'm going to stop here, and we're going to zoom all the way ahead to the imperial reform period of the early 16th century, 
and get a feel for how the empire looked and functioned during our story. In the 16th century, the empire could be broken down into a few basic types of holdings that all held imperial immediacy, meaning that they were direct vassals of the emperor without a mediating step. Governance inside these holdings was pretty much left up to the discretion of the ruler, and so of course was different everywhere. While concepts of sovereignty were still ill-defined, it would not be far off to think of these holdings as independent units within the broader umbrella of the empire. Just a quick note on terminology. I'm going to be calling these pseudo-independent units either fiefs or principalities, fief being the generic term for any holding, and principality being reserved for those that held princely status. This will spare us all my repeated use of the correct term, Reichstande. The term states is problematic to use at the time, and implies a level of sovereignty and independence that wasn't really present. The term estates, while widely used in literature both then and now, is too easy to confuse with estates of the realm in the societal class sense. Both province and territory also work, but are better to describe either geographic or political units that may exist within a single fief or principality. It's a big mess of pedantry, but in the Holy Roman Empire, such distinctions mattered, and so fief or principality is the term that I'm going to use. The princely imperial fiefs were sort of the standard important type of holding, and there were around 180 lay and 130 spiritual. These varied considerably in size and importance, but they were all lands deemed important enough to confer princely rank on their owner, and entitle them to representation in the Reichstag. Importantly, it was the land itself that conferred this privilege, and there was nothing to stop princes from amassing a series of fiefs and titles, and thus more representation in the Reichstag. And the true number of princes and prince bishops was more like 50 lay and 35 spiritual. There was also nothing to stop foreigners from acquiring these fiefs. So for example, the Duchy of Holstein was long held by the King of Denmark, which gave him a vote in the Reichstag, and perhaps a reason to intervene in imperial politics. Foreshadow, foreshadow. Foremost amongst the princes were the prince electors. Officially set out by name in the Golden Bull of 1321, the electors held not just preeminent status among the princes, but also about one-fifth of imperial territory and one-sixth of its population. In addition to these large resources, the electors were responsible for electing the new emperor. As we've said, the elections were almost always negotiated in advance but any successful dynasty had to keep the electors happy. And it would be an electoral question that will become the fuse that lights the powder keg in 1618. The most prestigious elector was the Archbishop of Mainz, foremost archbishop in Germany, the home of St. Boniface, the patron saint of Germany. The elector served as the primate of Germany, as well as the archchancellor of Germany. Can you tell it's associated with Germany? These are all honorary titles but they put the elector in the most prominent position besides the emperor. From this position, the Archbishop of Mainz acted as a sort of go-between between the emperor and the other princes, often mediating when disputes arose. It was the elector of Mainz who would call the election for the new emperor, and technically would hold imperial power in between emperors, although this power was never really used. The other two spiritual electors were the archbishoprics of Trier and Cologne. Both held important spiritual and moral authority, but very limited temporal power especially after the important city of Cologne became a free city out of the jurisdiction of its elector. Of the secular electors, the king elector of Bohemia was by far the richest, biggest, and most powerful. With borders corresponding roughly with modern Czechia, the king of Bohemia held the only royal title that was not directly linked to the imperial crown. Second in status was the elector Palatine. 
While smallest in actual territory, the title of Palatine was an important court position stretching all the way back to Roman times. Its territories were divided between the upper Palatinate along the Danube and the lower or Rhinish Palatinate along the Rhine. And these strategically located holdings gave the elector Palatine an importance far exceeding his material wealth or power. The other two electors, Saxony and Brandenburg, were located in the northeast. Saxony was smaller but more densely populated, while Brandenburg held large territories that were mostly poor or thinly settled. Each of these secular electors will have an important role to play in both the Reformation and the Thirty Years' War, and I will introduce them more fully as they each step into the spotlight in the coming episodes. The other princes consisted of archbishops, bishops, dukes, landgraves, and margraves, whose titles could only be transferred with imperial approval. Non-princely fiefs included counts and lesser lords and prelates, as well as hundreds of baronial and knightly holdings, and these little weird things like free abbeys or imperial bailiwicks. While technically these all held imperial immediacy, by the early modern era, they were no more important than the internal nobility within a principality, and their only goal seemed to be making maps more complicated. But wait, there's more. Most of the larger cities had emancipated themselves from lordly control and become imperial free cities that answered only to the emperor. This was usually the result of a long and protracted struggle with their lord, and each city had its own set of circumstances. Free cities were thus free to govern themselves without lordly interference, usually resulting in some variation of an oligarchic council of the most important burgomasters. The power of these cities varied, with some being little more than imperial villages, and they could control anything ranging from almost nothing beyond their walls, while others such as Ulm controlled whole provinces. The emperor ruled it all with a series of prerogatives that were intentionally ill-defined, because to define them would imply limits on his universal pretensions. Despite this, there was a reforming movement from the 1490s to the 1520s to create intermediary institutions between the emperor and the princes, both in an effort to give the princes a greater say in governance, but also to try and give the emperor a greater ability to solve internal problems. The increasing costs of war meant that even the Habsburgs were unable to completely shoulder the burden of protecting the empire. So in the face of the rising Turkish menace, a formal tax register was drawn up in 1521. Taxes were assessed on the basis of what was called the Roman month. This was the monthly upkeep for 24,000 soldiers that would theoretically accompany the emperor to his coronation in Rome, hence the name Roman month. While this theoretical use was never actually applied, the direct linkage of the unit of taxation to military upkeep should help explain its function. These were not regular taxes to pay for imperial administration. Instead, during times of crisis, the emperor could request months in order to protect the empire. Individual principalities and cities were all given an apportionment based on their relative wealth, and they could either supply the soldiers directly or just give money so the emperor could hire his own. The added effect of this register was to function as a sort of census that became a deciding factor in who would be represented in the Reichstag. The Reichstag, or the Imperial Diet, I would probably use the two interchangeably. It was not a parliament in the sense that it was meant to represent the people of the empire, but more an embodiment of the early modern idea that a king had a duty to consult his leading subjects on matters of common concern. As such, the emperor set the agenda. The Diet was broken into colleges, the electors, the princes, and the free cities. The princely college was always in flux, as territories split or merged, and their votes were sometimes distributed, sometimes shared, or sometimes modified, depending on the situation. 
The colleges would deliberate amongst themselves and send delegations to one another in a long and convoluted process until a formal recommendation to the emperor was agreed upon. The emperor could then accept or reject this recommendation at his discretion. It was cumbersome and it was sluggish, and the emperor was never really required to even call a diet, much less abide by it. But it quickly became the only way to create binding agreements for the whole empire, and it was actually surprisingly effective, meeting pretty regularly throughout the 16th century and passing a considerable amount of legislation. In 1495, the Reichstag agreed to a perpetual public peace throughout the whole empire, whereby all disagreements would be settled through a new supreme court, the Reichskammergericht. This court has received a lot of criticism for not preventing the eventual outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. And while it's true that things would start to break down during the confessionalization period of the late 1500s, as an institution, it fundamentally shifted feuds and debates from the battlefield to the courtroom. It's also worth noting that this court, created before the Reformation, would be given the unenviable task of sifting through heaps of confessionally charged matters. Considering the violence that broke out in France or in the Netherlands, the court conducted itself rather well. Rather than simply laying out verdicts, it attempted to find workable solutions that both parties would willingly agree to. Enforcement was left to the newly created Crees system. These Crees, or circles, would in essence become regional governments with their own assemblies and lesser courts and were tasked with defending their region against external threats or internal breakers of the peace. These lesser assemblies would give each prince one vote, meaning that the more numerous, smaller princes became much more powerful. And it was in these circles and their courts that most regional rivalries would play out. Now I'm sure many of you are worried that all of these new institutions are putting some pretty serious checks on the power of our poor old emperor. Never fear, he made his own supreme court, called the Reichshofsrat. This court dealt with imperial prerogatives, but as we've said, these could mean just about anything. And so the Reichshofsrat essentially gave license for the emperor to butt in wherever he wanted. Now I need to take a minute here to say that although in theory the power of the emperor was almost unlimited, it also rested heavily on his personal prestige. There was often very strong pushback to an emperor who was perceived to be governing arbitrarily, and even allies of the imperial cause would balk at the idea of riding roughshod over rights or precedent. The emperor could send out all the decrees he wanted, but if he actually wanted anything to be enforced, he needed to work through the constitutional system. The final important part of these reforms was a clear demarcation of the imperial borders. What was officially in and what wasn't could now be clearly demarcated by the imperial circles. But of course, because this is the Holy Roman Empire, it's never that simple. In the early 16th century, Bohemia and Switzerland were both definitely part of the empire. And Italy, it may have been, depending on who you talk to. But all three were excluded from the circle system. Appendix 1.2 goes into detail about where the borders lay and why, but the general theme is that the Habsburgs were insulating their own possession from interference by the other princes. As such, two of the circles, the Burgundian and the Austrian, were almost exclusively made up of directly ruled Habsburg lands. Hungary had never been part of the empire, and Bohemia was still on the naughty list thanks to the Hussites and so was left out of the reforms. But after 1526, when both crowns passed into Habsburg control, there was never any reason to incorporate either of them and allow them access to the Reichstag or the Reichskammergericht. The other important omissions were Italy and Switzerland. Switzerland was simpler in that this exclusion was just another step on its gradual road to full independence. Italy, on the other hand, always had a complicated relationship with the rest of the empire north of the Alps. 
the Italian Wars, from the 1490s to the 1550s, made issues of constitutional integration complicated, and further subsumed Italy into the direct Habsburg orbit. Italy was further isolated when the Emperor Charles V divided his possessions in the 1550s, and he left his considerable Italian holdings to the Spanish Habsburg line. There is no good date to say when Italy was no longer part of the empire. The title of King of Italy was dropped by emperors in the 1530s, but long after this, much of it would continue to appeal to the Reichshofsrat to settle disputes, and the many Habsburg interests meant that it remained an important part of imperial politics all the way up until 1608. All of the legal framework that we just went over was cumbersome, and it restricted the ability of the empire to act decisively but it also strengthened its ability to survive the coming storm, and is likely the reason that there still was an empire after the Thirty Years' War. It's this point that I really want to hammer home as we wrap up this first episode. While the specifics of the Constitution are interesting, it's the general sense of belonging and belief in the system that's most important. That concept of the German freedoms that we talked about earlier, it married really well with this new Constitution. Everyone had their own place within the imperial hierarchy, There may have been some jockeying for position, but there were never any real thoughts of independence. Each prince could feel secure with the knowledge that their own rights and privileges, their own unique freedoms, were tied to the imperial order and thus had a vested interest in protecting it. These beliefs led to a truly remarkable lack of bloodshed throughout the whole Reformation period. From the Peace of Augsburg in 1555 to the outbreak of war in 1618, Germany experienced its longest period of peace a feat only surpassed in 2008 with the current streak. So as things start to break down in the coming episodes, I want you to remember that the majority of the empire still trusted in the system and still hoped for a peaceful resolution to the mounting problems.